I'm Cody Calmers, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. One of my favorite psychology papers of all time is called Telling More Than We Can Know by Richard Nisbet and Timothy Wilson. The argument of that paper is that humans don't actually know why they do what they do, but they're more than happy to give you an explanation nonetheless. This is the reason why we need a science of human behavior. If we could all just intuit the correct answers automatically, there'd be no need for researchers to figure them out. This provides a kind of template for how psychological research works. I got the human to do something, and now I'm going to tell you why they did it. And cognitive science in particular is traditionally obsessed with explaining why in terms of one main concept, rationality. The human did the thing because it's a reasonable thing to do once you take into account all the right information. And if the story isn't so straightforward, then the deviation from rationality cries out for explanation. It is a story about human behavior that prioritizes practical function. We have the mental apparatus we have because it helps us succeed in the situations we're most likely to find ourselves. While this may be a useful explanation for behavior in the laboratory, things get more complicated once you start observing humans in the wild. What about all the stuff that isn't explainable by mere rational utility? Why, for instance, do I prefer some clothes over others? Why do I have a little piece of leather on my keychain when it either holds keys nor opens doors? Why did I listen to the Men in Blazers soccer podcast religiously for two years, then suddenly forsake it entirely? Why do I insist, simply out of principle, on never drinking French wine? In other words, what's the why behind culture? This question is the impetus for the recent book by my guest today, W. David Marks. David has lived in Japan for 19 years. His first book was Amatora, How Japan Saved American Style. For most of his career, he has followed and written about Japanese culture and its influence on the West. His latest book, Status and Culture, is his effort to explain the mechanisms of cultural change, why we do what we do when we don't need to do it. He calls this the grand mystery of culture. Why do humans collectively prefer certain practices and then years later move on to alternatives for no practical reason? This is where status comes in. David argues that it's the conceptual glue that holds together the parts of human behavior that aren't explained by rationality. How exactly it does that is the subject of our conversation. But the thing about status is that you can always have more of it. If, as David argues, we're all constantly chasing after status in one way or another, when does it stop? Is anyone ever satisfied with their status? Is the biggest fish in the pond happy? Or does she just want to find a bigger pond? Does status ever give us a sense of purpose or meaning? Or is it just empty calories? We get into a lot of this throughout the conversation. Yet, for me, reading David's book raised as many questions as it answered. Status and culture is an entry in the genre of epic theory. It seeks to explain everything. Doing so requires that one leaves out quite a bit especially when the book weighs in at a svelte 275 pages of full text. But there's something about David's book which makes me really love it. It is an academic book that isn't written by an academic. Reading it, one gets the feeling that the reader is hearing from someone who has actually been out there in the world and lived a little bit. David reads a lot, but it doesn't feel like he spends his days cooped up in a library. 
when he talks about culture, you know you're hearing from someone who has participated in it, not just theorized about it. He's not trying to explain why those other people over there are into one fashion trend or another. He's trying to explain the fashion trends which he's seen in his own social circles. David's new book is Status and Culture, How Our Desire for Social Rank Creates Taste, Identity, Art, Fashion, and Constant Change. It's out now. Ultimately, perhaps David, like all of us, is guilty of telling more than he can know. Do the mechanics of status really explain all of culture? I don't know. Maybe it is all about status. Maybe it's not. But I will keep that little piece of leather on my keychain just in case. If you enjoy this show, please consider giving it a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. And as always, you can find the entire feed of my work on my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. Rating and subscribing go a long way towards helping to support this work. Thank you for listening. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with W. David Marks. Okay, so to start off, can you say a bit about your background, what you do, and how you came to do it? I grew up in Pensacola, Florida, which is kind of nowhere in that it's, you know, it's a small, it's it's a semi-small town, so it's not even a small town, and uh, it's not a big town, and it's near nowhere. And I, you know, was very interested in culture because I had an older brother and sister who were just into cool stuff, so I listened to, you know, alternative music and uh, watched Twin Peaks and Saturday Night Live and, and all that as a kid and just was kind of glued to my TV, it, it, you know, interested in getting as much cultural uh, stimulation as possible that wasn't really quite in, in the town. And uh, I had a chance to go to Japan when I was 17 on a homestay program from Pensacola and the small town in the mountains. And uh, from that, I, I really started being interested in Japan, wanting to learn Japanese went to school, did four years of Japanese language, studied Japanese culture, ended up going to Tokyo on an internship. And I discovered street fashion uh, before it had really hit in the U.S. because it was very big in Japan about 1998 and, and the brand, The Bathing Ape. And I was both personally interested in that. And then it also became uh, kind of my academic focus because I was interested in you know, you learn supply and demand, you learn all these laws of things like when, you know, when goods are cheaper, people buy more of them, or uh, advertising makes people want things. And what the streetwear brands were doing was intentionally limiting their products. So it was very difficult to buy them, hiding stores, never using advertising, and basically making it, you know, more difficult for consumers to buy their goods. And at that point, it just seemed very counterintuitive to me. And I, I was interested in the question of why does that work with consumers? And that got me interested in just these fields of marketing and consumer behavior. And, you know, my university didn't have anything kind of business related because that's very uncouth. And so, you know, uh, I'd have to go over to the business school library to find any books on marketing and try to figure all this stuff out. But I ended up writing my senior thesis on a bathing ape and marketing and consumer uh, behavior in Japan and, and the history of all that. I moved to New York and worked for a magazine called Tokion, which is a bilingual Japanese English magazine about street culture. And so I was in New York for a couple of years, but realized I really wanted to get back to Japan to do that research and, and get my Japanese to be fully fluent. So I moved to Japan in 2003 and 
studied consumer behavior and marketing and got a master's in it, but focused more on the uh, music industry, looking at how basically organizational, you know, the, the industrial organization of the music industry impacts the sound of the music that comes out of it. And, and I think that's, if you look at anything that I've written over the years, what I'm interested in is thinking about culture, the cultural output and the cultural product, whether that's a song or a book or a painting as something that comes out of an institution and a, uh, uh, ecosystem and a context rather than it being this individual piece of art created by an individual. And I think that's the way it's sold. And maybe there's some, you know, reasons that it's better sold that way. So when you, when you get something, it feels like this is from the hand of an artist and it's more valuable, but you really can't understand culture unless you understand the, the you know, uh, cauldron that it is created inside of. And so my writing and my research, and I think both of my books look at, okay, you have a trend or you have something going on, but what is the thing behind it that makes people suddenly value that thing or makes somebody, a creator, say, I need to make this and not that? Uh, and you can't understand that unless you understand the economics of the world that they're in and the politics of the world that they're in and uh, the consumer situation and put thing, putting them all together in an ecosystem. And I think what's also important is just the degree to which art is always a reaction of the thing before it. And so you have to understand the thing before it. And so, you know, this approach, you know, is more or less, I would say sociological, but it takes, it, it needs to understand the kind of historical context of everything. And, uh, you know, that, that's something I think I got really into in graduate school. And then, you know, all my writing since then has more or less been that. I mean, I do profiles of people sometimes, which I find boring, but any, anything that anyone references for me, I think it's trying to go deeper in, not saying, okay, why does Japan make the best denim? Oh, it's because, uh, you know, in the eighth century, there was a indigo dyeing tradition in Japan and therefore Japan makes the best jeans. I mean, that's a ridiculous proposition. So instead it's to say, what were the specific industrial situations of the 1970s that made Japan start making jeans? And then from there, you understand that there's these individuals who made certain choices. Uh, there were certain economic factors, like the fact that in the U.S., there was there were labor strikes in mills in the South, uh, and you can no longer get any denim uh, very easily from the U.S. imported. So they needed to start making local denim, et cetera, et cetera. So you know all of those things to me are fascinating and are what make uh, culture interesting. Uh, and I think it's it, you know it, I'm not the only person doing it from that perspective, but I think it is often a rare perspective of the things I write about to be able to think about them more as a, uh, you know, contextual thing than just a, again, one person making one choice. And that choice is always just a free artistic choice. I, you know, I, I get bothered when I read musical biographies because it always makes every song seem like they just felt something and they made a song and you don't understand the degree to which, you know, they're, they're always working in conventions or working against the conventions for, for whatever reason of trying to establish themselves in the market. All right. Your book is about status. So my first question for you is how much of it do you have and how do you plan to get more? Well, the truth about status is that it doesn't matter how much you have, you always want more. So, uh, you know, every single person looking at their own status does not believe that they're at the very, very top. And, you know, having to think about it myself, uh, 
you know, there are areas in which I have high status and I reap the benefits from that. And, um, you know, there's a brand that I really like and they know who I am and the book I wrote and they believe that uh, I've been very helpful to them in terms of sales. And so I go in and I get a discount at the store. Um, they don't give that discount to everybody. And so when you have that kind of experience, you feel high status. And this is the you know point I'm trying to make in the book is status is not an abstract ranking. It is reflected in the way you are treated from other people because status is something you get from other people. And so if you go somewhere and you're treated very, very well and better than normal, you have high status. If you are treated like a god, maybe you have super high status. And if you're treated poorly, you have low status. And the thing also about status is it's contextual. So the question of how much status do I have in certain circumstances, I have high status in certain circumstances, I have low status. And uh, when I go to that store, I have high status when I'm on the train and someone won't sit next to me because they're scared of sitting next to a foreigner or whatever. I do feel like I have low status because a normal status person, someone would just sit next to them. There wouldn't be a question about it. And, uh, you know, so this question of how much status do I have and do I need more? Everybody would like more if they can get it. How hard they're going to work for it is a different question. And the second is how much status do I have? You know, that's something that you ask yourself every day and observe every day. And also it depends on the context you're in. And a lot of the, you know, resentment and the you know anger and anxiety that we feel is when we we go to a place in which we feel like we have high status and then the same day go to somewhere and we're treated not that way by other people and we that discrepancy really bothers us because then we don't feel the sense of security of knowing where we are i i totally avoided your your, your point of trying to beat me into saying you know <laughs> which is very I, smart oh, of you you should not uh, under any status. circumstances have engaged in that question at all yeah. <laughs> um so I guess one sort of high level point that I want to hear more about your thought process on is what are the, so the way you describe this sort of in your book and also in other podcast interviews that I've heard is that, well, I started thinking about culture and why people do things that are kind of, you know, like, well, they don't have to do that. They don't have to wear clothes that are red versus blue or, you know, then more and more sophisticated, you know, sort of iterations on, on what they, what they choose to do. Uh, okay, so that's culture. It's really hard to explain. I want to try and explain it. As I look towards other people's explanations and start to formulate my own, I keep bumping into this one thing, and that's status. Um, so can you maybe, you know, feel free to correct any uh, anything you want to there, but can you tell me like what, what other things could you have found? Uh, why didn't you find them? Can you expand on that a little bit, please? I mean, this is an interesting point, which is, you know, usually your thesis says uh, X does Y. And then the question is, well, aren't there any other things that could be the X that explain it? And so, you know, what I'm pushing against, and I, I reference it a little bit at the beginning of the book, but, you know, it's not an academic paper where I do a literature review and say, okay, here's the four other people and here's why they're wrong. But, you know, if you look at explanations of culture, let's let's go through a bit of them. So one of them is that it's random. And I didn't think this was a serious idea, but um, there was a book that came out uh, about two or three years ago that really pushed this idea that tastes are just a random walk like the stock market. So you can't predict on a daily basis what's going to happen in the stock market the same way you can't 
predict the directionality of how how tastes change. And when you look at cultural change, you're really talking about change in preferences and change in taste. So taste is random. Uh, and you know, my problem with that is if you just look through history, it's absolutely directional that you have an elite group who be into something and they will be the only people who find it tasteful or interesting. And then suddenly it, it diffuses through society. And that directionality is incredibly constant. It doesn't matter what the field is. It doesn't matter the era. Um, the, the 20th century complicated a bit for, from, you know, what are innovations within low status communities or, you know, communities perceived to be low status, like jazz or something becomes this, you know, monumental form of the 20th century. And you could say, aha, things go from bottom up, but that's not really how it worked. And the people at the top brought it up and then it trickled down, you know, uh, like normal. So culture can't be random. Uh, so that's one thing. There is this idea that cultural culture is evolutionary, that uh, it follows the principles of Darwin. And there's a book that he's read about this. I'm, I'm going to write more about um, called Cultural Evolution. And it tries to kind of look at that theory. Uh, it, that may, basically says that some cultural form, you know, has uh, more fit for the world. And that's why it succeeds. But if you look at so many trivial cultural changes like fashion or hairstyles like it doesn't make any sense fit is not really you know part of it so i i I, darwinian theories of culture don't really make any sense then there's the viral model which is to say that i think it's cool to uh have a beatles haircut and then you see the beatles haircut and three other people see it and then they spread it and then it goes exponentially throughout and you know, this is also kind of related to the idea of mimetics and memes that Richard Dawkins came up with. And the problem with that is that it often puts the f- emphasis on the cultural entity itself as the actor, which is not true. So, you know, haircuts don't do things. People make a decision to get a haircut. And so by talking about viruses, because viruses are the actor, viruses jump from person to person, uh, it makes culture just seem like we're the, you know, a host of this other metaphysical thing that is happening, which I don't think is true. So, and then, you know, on virality also, Derek Thompson and Hitmakers looks at, you know, viral videos and things that, you know, we, we use this term for, and most of them do not spread exponentially at all. They kind of move along. And then at some point, what's called a dark broadcaster, like somebody with a ton of followers pushes it and then suddenly it goes uh it becomes mainstream so virality doesn't really work and you know probably the most famous book about cultural change of the last 30 years is the tipping point by malcolm godwell and it's you know more or less based on that concept that the culture is viral and i don't think that holds at all and i think about half that book has probably been debunked at this that point at this point but uh so i think those are the main ones and what i was looking at Uh, There's one other really obscure one, but there's this idea of power law that basically if you have a group of people blindly copying each other, you just get these kind of um, natural bumps of everybody kind of doing the same thing without any sort of directionality or, uh, you know, consideration of status. And what's interesting is then they re-ran the models and they added status into the equation. And then the 
the diffusion curves looked almost exactly like real life. So, you know, even that theory, I think they've gone back and said that if you add status to it, it makes more sense. So at the end of the day, you know, what started making more sense, if you look at directionality and you look at it, it's not viral, uh, it all comes back to people are status status seeking certain behaviors become associated with high status groups, which makes them valuable. And that that value, that status value is what drives trends. And the minute that that's that trends diffuse too widely, obviously the status value disappears and then the trend itself becomes less valuable. And then you, you start the whole thing over again. This is not a new idea whatsoever. Uh, it, you know, it, I think it really comes from Veblen and it comes from uh, Georg Zimmel, uh, who has a great essay in fa- about fashion from the early 20th century. So, you know, these ideas have been there. And what I was just trying to do is simply say, uh, let's look at the entire cultural ecosystem of class, subculture, art, uh, and try to use status as the one concept that can kind of bring everything together. And, you uh, you know, obviously status is not the only factor on the cultural ecosystem whatsoever, but it's, I think, the central one that at least explains the one question of why when people have arbitrary choices, they choose one thing over the other and why those tend to, uh, those choices tend to aggregate and they change at the same time where everyone suddenly likes the same things at the same times and those things move in certain patterns. So I want to try and articulate a concern that I have uh, about this way of kind of framing the project. And I don't, and I, and I wouldn't say this is a critique. I don't yet really know how much I believe my own concern here or that sort of thing. But I, I, it's something that I've been thinking about as kind of like, you know, what, what, what do I make of the, the sort of the grand project here at, at, at a higher level? Um, and so let me, let me try and articulate that for you. So, you know, the, the, the big thing that you're trying to do here is you're trying to say, okay, so let's look at non-rational human behavior. We have lots of social sciences, you know, economics, cognitive science, whatever, which are doing a really good job of saying, well, when humans are looking to do these sort of basic rational functions, uh, we've got good theories of those, and we've got a lot of big picture theories uh, of those. Um, but your personal interests and, you know, what you think matters for humanity tend towards things that don't really fit neatly into any kind of standard academic discourse um, that you can understand in terms of just like plain old rationality. And then you're trying to say, okay, well, so let's take those things that don't have straightforward rational explanations uh, and we'll call them culture. Um, and then, which, you know, pretty uh, 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 uncontroversial de- definition of culture to some extent. Um, right, and, can, can I, before yeah, you move on, let me, let me check that. Cause I think you're close. And I just want to get really clear, which is that um, if you have in front of you two glasses of water and they say, choose one and one of them is poison and one of them is water, it is a rational choice to drink the one with water and not the one with poison. You don't need any kind of culture to make that decision. If you have two glasses and one is blue and one is red, Maybe it's it's psychological personal preference or something, but if they're both blue and you have to choose one, um, then it is an arbitrary choice. It it really does not matter. And so what culture is about is the times when there are choices to be made and there are ways of doing things and there are multiple efficient, you know, maybe they're not efficient, but, you know, there are multiple ways to get things done and the choice is arbitrary. 
And there has and, and these are often called coordination problems because the other thing that happens is that everyone needs to do the same thing at the same time, or people want to do things together, or there's some reason why there needs to be some sort of group decision, but they all congregate on one choice. And this is kind of how I define culture, which is that it is the conventions that form around these arbitrary choices. And so you're, you're going the right direction, which is to say, rational, there's some sort of efficiency gain or some sort of clear reason why you would do something that independent people not working together would all come to the same conclusion. Whereas this non-rational behavior is, uh, it doesn't really matter what choice people make, they'll still live lives. But you know, uh, if they want to coordinate with people around them, they have to make these choices and those are cultural. Okay. Thanks. Love that. Thank you for that. And I think that sets me up exactly where I want to be to sort of layer on the concern, um, which is that, you know, so you take those arbitrary choices and that's culture. That's what we're trying to figure out. And then, uh, I guess one way of framing what you do is that you then say, well, let's look for a rational explanation for why we do that. And then kind of take whatever you find there and, uh, you know, call that status. And I think the way I, I phrase that is kind of ungenerous. I don't necessarily mean it ungenerously. I'm just trying to put it in the way that like kind of like outlines why I think it's something to be worried about. Um, and then because, you know, essentially what you're doing is you say, Hey, here are these arbitrary things. Let's try and figure out why they're not arbitrary. What do they actually do? And the answer is that they optimize for status. Well, what does status give us? It gives us things that we would want rationally. It gives us more access to resource. It gives us, you know, uh, a better sense of belonging to community and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so do you kind of see where I'm going with this? So, you know, I, I, I'm, I was trying to be really careful and I may have not replaced them all. But what I I was saying for a while, I think the pursuit of status is rational. And I don't know if I would go that far. I would say it's logical, right? In, if, in the sense that if you get all these benefits, you want more status. Um, rationality requires, and you know, I read a bit of this, and, and I, there is some you know, debate about what rationality is. But I think for rationality, there has to be a general self-consciousness that you are doing a thing in order to do a thing that I'm going to uh, buy these products at a cheaper price in order to maximize the money I have to maximize the goods I can buy for the money that I have. And so I am not convinced whatsoever that cultural behavior is rational in the sense that everyone is running around uh, knowing they want status and knowing that if I buy denim that's a little bit skinnier then i'm going to get more status those are those may be subconscious and they've infected other judgments and the other thing is that people are telling themselves these alibis of i'm in the skinny jeans because they just look cool without knowing well what does it mean to look cool what is, where does coolness come from what comes from association with high status groups and so uh i i do not believe at all that this behavior is rational and especially when it's choosing between two things that have no efficiency gains, it's not rational. But there's a logic to it. And the other way to think about it, and this is kind of two in the weeds for the book, but it's worth me writing somewhere, is when you have these coordination problems that are solved by culture, um, and you know, there's there's a game theory kind of side of this, that you know, all the solutions are the same. So you just have to kind of arbitrarily say, 
Um, you know, I want to meet my friend. I got to talk to my friend about something really important. I can meet at his house or he can come to my house. It doesn't matter, but we've got to pick one. So both of those solutions are equal, uh, but you've got to pick one. And maybe there's some reason of saliency, like, oh, we happen to be slightly nearer my friend's house. So we'll go there. So there's these kind of questions of salience and culture changes because those saliences change. And status is one of the main saliences of why you would choose one choice over another. Um, but, you know, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at, which is just there's there's a reason. But I think just because there's a reason doesn't mean it's rational. And I, I hope that kind of clarifies, you know, what your concern is, because I'm not trying to say, oh, this is actually like economics in the degree of it's this rational because things can still go in crazy directions with culture, uh, you know, as always. But that there's a logic to it, that it is not a group of random behaviors and it's unpredictable. And um, uh, there's no way to explain why people do what they do. There's a perfectly rational, sorry, I just used that word again. There's a perfectly logical explanation for it, which is that if people unconsciously are searching for status and they've unconsciously uh, taken in symbolic meanings of everything in the world and have they all have status valiances that will absolutely push them in certain directions over others. Definitely the word that I would tend to, you know, you, you use the word logical over over rational. Uh, I think maybe functional, uh, in that there is a, a, a function that you can look to and say, well, they're actually getting something out of this. When you understand this in the right context, um, there is something to this. Uh, and, and when you find that, uh, uh, that thing tends to be, what you're defining is status. There's one other thing that I want to bring in here, which you definitely uh, touch on well in the book, but it's it's kind of an idea that I have a, a minor obsession with, which is that there's so many of the things that we want in life. Uh, the way to get more of them is to go after something else. Uh, and happiness is a classic example of this. If you wake up every day and are obsessive about how to make yourself more happy, you uh, that is one of the quickest ways to become unhappy, right? Whereas that's different than like making money. Money, it's like if you wake up and think like, okay, I want to make a bunch of money. I'm like, okay, great, go go. Uh, sure, there are different strategies from that, but you can optimize for that directly. And status is one of these things uh, like happiness where you can't get it by going directly after it in the sense that, and you mentioned this with the the alibi thing, but in the sense that um, uh, any status uh, signal that is an overt status signal, it's obviously vying towards increasing your status, doesn't work. Um, You need to be doing something uh, ostensibly it's going to, you know, for some other reason, and then by virtue of that, you accrue the the status. Uh, So I think that's a really important dynamic and one uh that really is at the sort of mechanistic heart of of of, of what's happening here yeah uh, i mean absolutely that's what makes it so difficult uh in that people want it but to actually get it requires hard work and can you, can also you say more about that uh like you this is the second time you've 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 said uh like working specifically can you, yeah can you can you just unpack that for me please? okay so you know in 
in the book I talk about there's you know many ways to to have status and in the way status is supposed to work and the way that humans have developed it and you know I there's a big debate about whether status is evolutionary and it's in our genes or whether it's a uh, a solution to to social problems I'm very much on the solution side just because it's very clear that that is a mechanism that exists uh, and the evolutionary side would have to prove that 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 status exists without the social uh, I'm, I'm not being very articulate here, but more or less, you know, humans come together in groups. They have to solve tasks in solving the tasks over time they develop hierarchies because some people make more contributions to those tasks than others. They get more rewards. So this is a mechanism that exists in the world. And in order for evolutionary psychology to say, no, 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 humans are born with a status instinct, you would have to prove that even in situations where people are not working towards goals in groups and building hierarchies, then people are still status seeking. So, you know, that I, that's why I'm kind of, I think the, the evolutionary psychology side is probably just too, too focused on that. But anyway. Can, so, I, can I jump in yeah. on that really quick? I just want to make sure I yeah. understand. Um, so you're saying that, so kind of what you're doing is this reverse engineering process of saying, okay, so uh, I'm going to look for what explains the kind of arbitrary decisions we make in culture and, and how trends work and that sort of stuff. And I'm going to find it in status. But the reason status is the driver of those things is that because it does serve this important uh, function. Like it is like, like we give status to people because they're productive now, because we've set up that system of like status matters. And we use that as a proxy for productivity and usefulness and utility and how much, you know, you can get out of being in a relationship with someone and knowing them and, and all that sort of stuff. You can now gain that system and say, well, I'm going to get status without functionality. And you talk quite a bit about that uh, as well, but that's the kind of the, like that that's the name of the game here do i have that do i do i yeah. that is my understanding so that, that? that that's great so let's say there's a the first order of status which is like in a perfect world it's supposed to go to people making the most contributions so then it makes sense that if you have an, a society if you have is there a definition capital, of contribution that 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 works there because yeah it's like does you know, i mean obviously it's vague and obviously it's people are going to have different opinions about what's a contribution or not. But let's say, you know, working towards complex post-industrial society, you need people to do certain occupations. Doctors. There got to be doctors. So you give doctor status because we need doctors. You give, uh, and it's also hard to be a doctor. Not everybody can be a doctor. We give a status to people with educational capital, so they've gone to good schools or they have, you know, advanced degrees, because that is a signal that it's they're very likely to become important and useful. Money is now the complicating factor, which is the more money you have, it can be a sign that you're productive. It can be productivity itself in a capitalist society, because if you have money, you can invest it and then, you know, help out. But it um, becomes a hack in a sense that we start using as a proxy for all these other virtues like intelligence and success and contribution where it could just be money itself. And, uh, you know, there's always been a bit of a stigma of money alone being a pathway to status. I think that that is, is going away. But there's a reason that you have a card shark 
that let's say makes $100,000 a year and you have a professor making $100,000 a year and the professor would have more status in more places in society because there's this occupational capital category as well. But the point being is that status is is a sign of importance and a sign and supposed to be about contribution and it comes down to these forms of capital that you build over time for yourself. And so if you want to gain more status, you can get a better job, you can go to a better school, you can uh, make more money, you can do these things that are based on achievement. And this, and again, this is also, and I get to it in the book, this is a post-French Revolution capitalist society you know, formation of, of status. So before then, it's you're set up in these caste systems and, and all that. Then there's the question of their virtues. You know, if you're a funny, charming person, you may have status at a cocktail party. But these virtues generally do not uh, affect your global status, which is your position in society. So it really does come back to these forms of capital. These forms of capital tend to be interrelated. So if you have high educational capital, it's quite likely you have high occupational capital and you have some economic capital. Where things get messy and you can hack the system is you think about fame, which is that you used to be famous for some sort of achievement. That, uh, you know, Einstein is famous because he has given this incredible contribution to the world of physics, but then Einstein becomes famous on his own. And so with celebrity, and this goes back to Daniel Borston's book, The Image, and it's a really, you know, crusty old, uh, you know, critique, but I think obviously it's true, which is that celebrities are famous for being famous. And a lot of what we do uh, in the world in terms of entertainment is, you know, what he calls pseudo events. So there aren't actual things. They're just, you know, kind of positioned to be a thing. And because all the attention is on it, like it's a thing, we treat it as a thing. And so if you look at a social media influencer, these are not people who have done anything and contributed anything most you know many of them some some people may be very talented but let's say you're just famous for being an influencer then you're hacking the system to gain this big follower count from knowing how to create follower accounts so so these things are always hackable but at the end of the day they're supposed to be about contribution and when you become very famous and very wealthy and high status based off of something that people do not believe is uh contributing to society or was that impressive? And they think you've hacked the system. It is likely that they will not give you status the way you want. And that if you have any kind of faltering, if anything goes down for you, you are toast and you will kind of fall back to the bottom. Whereas if you win a Nobel Prize, you can probably live out the rest of your life with some sort of status because people will believe that it, it it is true. This also hits on a really important point about the way status works in an organization, which is their status integrity and that people only give status and believe in the status system and are willing to be in the hierarchy if they believe there's some sort of fairness to the hierarchy. So if you live in a world in which people are only getting rich off speculation, so let's say, you know, NFTs had gone you know, in January, it looked like, you know, you were an idiot for not buying an NFT. So let's say the NFT market explodes and the crypto explodes. And then suddenly the thousand richest people in the world were people who made a, a decision to put all of their money into JPEGs. And they're now, you know, running around as, as our new kind of billionaire overlord class. There would be a, a serious status integrity problem, which is that people would not believe that they should be the richest people. And the things they do may taint their choices, not, you know, make everyone follow them. So, you know, 
in order to get status, there are ways to hack the system. There are ways to understand the rules and find loopholes. But at the, you know, what is supposed to happen is you're supposed to figure out how to make better contributions. And a lot of that does require hard work. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter what the field is, but you're going to have to learn some things. You're going to have to do some things and, and you're going to have to, you know, figure out what is meaningful to other people. Hey, Cody here. I'm going to keep this short and sweet, but this interlude goes on for another one minute and 30 seconds if you just want to skip through it. If you have not already, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. If you like this episode, I promise you will like the rest of my work and the Substack newsletter is the best way to keep up to date with all of that. I try to improve just a little bit every week on the quality of these podcast episodes and each weekly post features the most interesting idea that I could find, which gives a cognitive science perspective on the pursuit of meaning in work, life, and relationships. Of course, if you buy a premium subscription, that's a huge help to me, and I really appreciate it, like a lot. But even just subscribing does a lot to support me in my work. The number of free subscriptions is the single most important number I track to see how my platform is growing which in turn helps me get better guests and more opportunities in the future. More people on there also means I get more feedback and I can see which ideas are landing and which ones aren't. So yeah, please check it out. I put out new podcast episodes every Tuesday, new posts every Friday. If you subscribe to the Substack newsletter, you'll get all of those right to your email inbox. Again, you can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. I want to kind of go in a, a slightly different direction for a second. And I want to ask you about the connection between happiness and status, or it doesn't have to be happiness. You can kind of interpret, you know, whatever you want that word to mean right now, uh, sort of, you know, well-being, satisfaction, something like that. But uh, one of the big points made in the book, a book full of big points, I might, I might say, is that uh, social status is a, is a kind of infinite well. And you talked about this at the beginning, that how, however much you want, uh, you want more. Uh, and there's kind of this meme that's been going around uh, this last week that I've seen, which is that what uh, drives the world isn't uh, greed, but envy. So it's not just that you always want more, but you want more than and who that then is, who that or that reference, uh, that frame of reference is, really matters. And so, uh, you know, according to you, uh, in 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 your argument here, what we're all doing a large part of the time is this search for status. And so, I guess I want to know, like, are there instances, like, who is satisfied with this sort of accrual of status that they've done? And uh, and, and, and the reason I mentioned the greed versus envy thing is because it feels like it matters a lot who that frame of reference is, right? So we can't all be like Brad Pitt or Michelle Obama or Cristiano Ronaldo or whatever. Uh, but, you know, we can be high status in our local church or, you know, uh, if we've got a blog that, you know, people follow and, and you know, you, you, you are high status within the, the sphere of that blog, whatever it is. So I guess overall, the, the with, with all of that in mind, the question is, is the person who is the biggest fish in their pond happy? Yeah, that that is the right word. I was about to say, um, you know, big fish in small pond. And there is a great 
spoke about this by econ uh, economist Robert Frank calling choosing the right pond, which is about this exact question. So, um, so to start with, you know, it, it is quite interesting the degree to which Rene Girard's like mimetic desire theory has now become this hot thing among, especially, you know, VC people and Peter Thiel or, or whoever it is. Um, but, you know, the, my, my kind of take on where this mimetic desire comes from is the fact that there are certain conventions and oh, sorry, mimetic them, desire. I don't, I don't actually don't, I don't know exactly what you mean by that. Or I oh yeah. That. So the Gerard's theory is pretty much that people all want the same things that, you know, somebody, you see someone else have something, you say, I want that. And I, I forget exactly what, where he thinks that comes from, but where it comes from in the sense of you want to buy the same things as people around you is that you believe you have a certain status. And, and, and again, it's important to reiterate that people are not simply obsessed with having higher status, but they also want to maintain the status they have. And, and most people are what I would call normal status. They're in a group, they're a member of good standing, and they want to stay that way. And so if they see people around them living a certain lifestyle that lifestyle becomes a consumption standard for them to keep normal status. And so if everyone you know lives in a house and you live in a shack in the back of someone's house, um, you will probably be judged not to be in that status group anymore. You have to buy a house. If everybody has a Mercedes-Benz and you drive a beat-up Datsun, then you're going to have to get a nicer car in order to stay normal status. And so it's not just that I want what everyone else wants it's that there is a fear that if you do not consume uh, in the right way, you will fall out of your status group. And, and this idea goes back to Veblen, and you can read about it in um, the theory of the leisure class. But uh, so, so if you take that, and then you think about what envy is, uh, and envy to me is the idea that someone of the same status group with the same status assets, like this is how much status this person should have, and this is how much I have, for some reason they are getting more benefits than I am. And that infuriates people. Or even worse, here's a group of people who are lower status than me, and they're getting more than I am. So the, some, the integrity of the system is off, and I'm angry about it. And, it. and if you look at ethnic conflict in places like Sri Lanka, so much of it is the idea of their group, this ethnic group, is getting the benefits that we get, and they should not because they are lower status than us. You can also look at the modern Republican Party and look at white grievance, and that 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 idea uh, applies to them as well. So, you know, envy is the idea that there should be a certain level of benefits that people of a certain status level get, and when that gets upset, um, people get very angry about it, and when one's own group feels like they're losing status because the benefits are going away and the respect is going away, then they also get angry about it. Um, what was the second part of your question? Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to get is like, where are there cases where it stops, right? So yes, we, we have, we are all, there's a like, okay, let's, let's say that at least some of, of what's happening in culture can be definitely explained by some sort of pursuit of status and we usually want more of it. What are the what are the limits of that? And 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 how do you you act? I mean, how do you actually find a sort of satiation with that? Yeah. So if you you should, and people interested in status should definitely seek out the work of Cameron Anderson, who is a uh, psychologist at UCLA, I believe. Um, and uh, sorry, Berkeley, 
And he had a couple of papers that said interesting things. And one is that no matter how much status you have, you want more. So you cover that one. The other is they've, they've done these huge surveys around the world of people and happiness. And they found the one of the best indicators is not absolute wealth, but relative wealth. So there, you know, there is a certain limit, I believe. I think it's like $70,000 or something. But, you know, once you cross that threshold, people um, do not necessarily have a happiness increase. But if you are living in a community where you are slightly wealthier than the people around you, that is a ticket to happiness. And that is incredibly depressing. And there's no motivational poster that's going to be made about that that says on the wall, you know, the way the path to happiness is being slightly higher status than the people around you. But that is the big fish and small pond strategy. And it most certainly seems like that works for humans, that they do want to feel like they have high status. Um, Now, the question is, and this is um, often talked about as another kind of solution for, for human misery, which is if you are low status in the main status group in a society, uh, you should just leave and form your own status group. And that's what subcultures are or, you know, alternative status groups. So if you are dissatisfied with mainstream society, you can go join a commune. You can become a punk. You can become a furry. You can be an incel. You know, whatever these things are, you can go and join these groups, find solidarity, and maybe you will be high status. Because, you know, especially with, you know, punk or some some of these youth subcultures, if you were someone who was destructive in society, who had none of the skills the society wanted, you can flip those into being assets for you in your new group. So that's great. So now you have high status in your own group. And you and and another thing that these researchers have found is that your local status, your status within a small group like your church or community is your pathway to happiness. So that's great. The thing that I'm a little skeptical about at the macro scale is that these groups, because society is not one giant hierarchy, it's kind of a hierarchy of hierarchies, right? So there's all these different groups and they all kind of sit on it, is that there are benefits that go from the top to the bottom that are uh, distributed to higher status groups. So even if you break off from mainstream society and have your own group, you will be denied some benefits. And so groups try to push for and fight for more status for their group, even if they're a marginal group. And this is and this kind of inner group conflict is what creates a lot of the culture. And, and I talk about this in the book. So, you know, battles between classes and battles between uh, you know, subcultures and, and mainstream and, and how artists split off, you know, all of this friction is very productive in terms of cultural output. But the main point of this is I do think being in a being high status in a smaller group is a ticket to happiness. Not everyone can get that. Right. I mean, this is the other thing we're talking about a form of happiness in which it's limited to only only a small group of people. That is very different than, again, your motivational poster self-help book version of happiness, which is that it has to be democratic and available to everybody. So this is a depressing answer about where happiness comes from. But it does seem like this is true. So, yeah, kind of building off all that, I think there's something that maybe this is a little bit closer to what uh um i think about a different way of of framing this um to what extent is status an objective thing versus a subjective thing um so kind of 
two two ways of looking at this. One would be that, well, status is this thing that exists and we're all just trying to figure out what ours is and how that number compares to someone else's. And, you know, when we have different frames of reference, that number will either be relatively high or relatively low than the average in the population or something like that. So that's kind of an objective account of, of habit. And then a subjective one would be that status is something more like a story we tell about ourselves. So when I asked you my uh, stupid tongue-in-cheek question about, well, you know, how much status do you have and how are you going to get more, your answer to that is not, well, it's 4,896, that's my status number. It's here's the way in which I make sense of this. And then you have the opportunity to frame it in the group because uh, there's always going to be a lower status group to you. Uh, at least, you know, from your own perspective, and there's always going to be a higher status. Um, just as, you know, economically, there's always going to be someone who's poor, there's always going to be someone who's richer. And so relatively, it like, there is no absolute relative. It's which relative are you looking at? What is your favorite relative? So I think that's a core thing that I've had trouble wrapping my mind around uh, here in in trying to understand your your big picture framework. So there's a lot of stuff in that, but the, the core thing is the objective versus subjective What's, what's, what's your thinking on that? I mean, it's absolutely not an objective mathematical ranking whatsoever. It is absolutely in your mind and in people's minds. I mean, I do think there's a collective understanding of who is high status and low status. And the way I talk about it too, is I think there are tiers. There are general groupings that we understand and we understand that neurosurgeons are high status and we understand that sanitation workers are lower status. You know, and you could probably argue the sanitation workers make more contribution to society or something, but, in, in, you know, still. But wait, um, sorry, we, can, we, can we, so you mentioned yeah. several things like that. So there's the professor versus the poker player. There's the surgeon versus the sanitation worker, that sort of stuff. And I get that from a mainstream perspective. You know, if you go and interview people on the Harvard campus, which ones are they going to rank as higher status or not? And that, you know, if you, if you go whatever, right. But then- for an individual who values uh, the dignity of, of hard, honest work, you know, to kind of put it in a way that, you know, like, which is a, a, like some of the terms that you've used in your book that are from sociologists and that sort of stuff to describe how people talk about themselves and, and frame what they do as, for example, sanitation workers or whatever, as high status work. And so then, you know, like there's also lots of pushback against cultural elites saying like, okay, well, yes, sure, sure surgeons uh, are great, but like what happens when there's all of these doctors who are over-prescribing medicines uh, and, uh, you know, like big, uh, you know, so without going into too much of the examples, you know, the, in every one of these cases where you say, well, X is higher status than Y, in the case that you are taking this kind of one perspective on it, but there's an other uh, perspective that can that, that thinks the opposite, right? So, I mean, like, I, I don't, maybe I just don't fully understand how that fits into the... Um, it, it's really, com- the reason you don't understand is because it's really complicated and there's no way to fully understand it, which is that every single person has their own individual sense of, you know, hey, for me, sanitation workers are, do have more dignity and should have more esteem than a social media influencer. So let's say I believe that. And you know, <laughs> that's a pretty good example that. of a uh, pretty defensible. Uh, that's a pretty good yeah, one. That's, yeah. that's easy that one. one. That one then, we can all get behind that one. So, so then, but then you think about, um, and I think this is where, you know, if you want to understand this, I think you have to understand something like the idea of common knowledge, 
which is that I know something, but I know that you know it, and I know that you know that I know it, and you know that I know that you know it, and, and all of that, right? And so these beliefs that get really strong become common knowledge. And so the question for these beliefs is, if I believe that a sanitation worker is higher status than a social media influencer, do I have, is, it, is that common knowledge? And I think the answer is no, because you look at a social media influencer and they are living more glamorous lives because fame has become this thing that provides high status and we mark with high status. And so it doesn't really matter what you think unless you know that other people know it and that it that's the kind of the, you know, uh, convention of society and the conventional belief of society. And so what you're talking about is there's different groups with different beliefs about how status should be distributed. And they're fighting over that to try to create the common knowledge for their criteria to, to rise up over someone else's. So it is complicated in that not every single person in a society has to believe something, but there's that sense that just sense that everyone out there generally is acting as if this is true. And I think that's where you see it. Because I, I also can guarantee you, if you interview nine out of 10 people, they will probably tell you a sanitation worker deserves higher status than a social media influencer, but it's just not true. We all know that the, the status is being distributed differently. So uh, it, it is a kind of difficult question of how to understand this because it is not objective in any sense. It is all based off of your understanding of every other people's understanding. And, you know, with any kind of um, social belief, it could be that every single person doesn't believe it, but they think that other people believe it and therefore it exists, right? You get into those kind of um, problems. And I I don't know which, there's some great scholarship on this, I'm sure. I I don't know, you know, who specifically to to look into, but, um, or, you know, there's a great book by what's her name? It's the emergence of norms um, by Edna Ullman Margulet. And it's all kind of game theory of how norms get formed. And you can have norms that nobody believes are fair, but still exist because no one will break them, et cetera, et cetera. So um, these things can happen. So it's not, it is absolutely subjective and it changes because of the subjectivity and it can change very quickly when everyone else realizes actually no one believes that social media influencers should have status. Let's just, you know, the whole thing will collapse. So there's that. The question of objective, I and this is where I think it gets more difficult because it's not trivial uh, in the sense of how status is formed is subjective, but how status is doled out has a real meaning on people's lives. It, it makes their lives better or worse. And some of that is psychological in the sense that if you go out into the world and people treat you with respect and esteem, you will have a better day. So if you just look at people's psychological state for uh, them to be esteemed probably improves that. So if we can give more people in the world esteem, you probably have more happiness, less anger, less social conflict. That's great. But then also you get these material benefits. and so. You know, what is the difference between sitting in business class and 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 economy? There is a material benefit to those. Um, and those are paid for. But let's say, you know, okay, so right now at the moment, there's an airport and everybody has to sit on these horrible seats uh, waiting for their plane. Uh, but there's also a VIP lounge. And you go in there and you get free food and you get free Wi-Fi and, and it's, you know, a much better experience 
that's a material benefit. And so that's an objectively better way to live. And so this, and again, this is why it's so complicated and why it's so fraught. And what politics is about is the politics is about the distribution of resources and status determines the, that, that distribution of resources and people get very political about, are we giving status to the right people for the right criteria? And, you know, um, this is something that basically has propelled human society for thousands and thousands of years is trying to answer this question in this debate. And uh, it, you know, it happens now. And I think you cannot understand American politics at the moment without understanding these questions of status, because the Republican Party in its white grievance formation at the moment is is more or less an it seems like an ethnic interest group who is fighting for the status of the particular things that they believe and that the rest of the country has moved on from. So there's uh, a, several points in there that reminded me of something that I was really excited to talk to you about, uh, which is the idea of monoculture. Um, and so one of the ways in which I've heard this brought up in the past, and this has to do with the kind of frame of reference subjectivity, you know, how do you, how do you measure who against what, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, when we talk about the, the, the greats of the past, whether that's artists or scientists or uh, writers or whatever, a lot of times what we're talking about is this, you know, let's call it 20th century uh, white male American, you know, kind of dominated society where there's like six TV channels and like radio is the only place to get like audio. And if you want to connect and find people from like elsewhere on the planet, like you just kind of shit out of luck. And, uh, you know, most of the world that was in America was really heavily impacted by these two big old wars or the aftermath of colonial rule and all that sort of stuff. Everyone was busy solving sort of very fundamental problems. And so at that time, it's really easy to look back and say, okay, well, there was a ton of great art back then, particularly, you know, by these white male Americans. And then uh, today it's like, you know, gosh, I mean, like, is there really great art anymore? Sure, there's lots of cool stuff, but is there great art, capital G, capital A? Um, And so one way to frame this is in terms of, well, previously what was happening was that there was a monoculture, that there was one clearly dominant society. And the reason why we no longer have that perception of, of great art is that we've kind of splintered off into these different kinds of, of culture. And there's one kind of distinction that I want to draw here that kind of complicates that classic uh, kind of take on that, which is that the complication here is that, um, you know, so there's, the idea of monoculture where there's kind of one clear cut cultural voice standing out above the rest, this so-called dominant group or whatever you want to say. And then, you know, in that sense, monoculture has largely been toppled. We don't really have that to the same extent. There's so many different kinds of voices uh, as there, as there should be and all that sort of stuff. But in another sense, monoculture is actually stronger than ever. And that's because uh, basically we are all getting fed a diet of things that for us become this, uh, you know, sort of, uh, monocultural here's, uh, how things work. And like you were kind of saying with, with Japanese culture at the beginning, there's this sense of, um, well, you know, here is the right way to do things. And I think because of let's, let's say like social media algorithms, giving us more of, what we're familiar with, what we like, what makes us comfortable, what makes us click and all that sort of stuff. We have more and more of this sense of like, well, the way we perceive things and the way we do things and the way my culture, my social group works, 
that's the one that makes sense. Everyone else uh, out there, to use a technical term, is just kind of wacko. Um, and yeah, so I'm interested in in what you think about that dynamic and how it's been playing out in our our culture and and how it changes the dynamics of the status game as you understand it. So most certainly in the early 20th century, you had some sort of very well aligned mainstream culture in which the richest people uh, dominated the aesthetics and had some idea of propriety. And that was this kind of thing lodged in society and avant-garde art always pushed against that definition of art. It was very clear to say, okay, so if academic art in the 19th century in France is art and everything else isn't art, then we're going to push what the ontological meaning of art is forward by thinking about it in different ways. And then one group would propose something and the next group would say, no, 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 this is what art is. And they kept pushing and pushing. But they all, so they had not only to push against the mainstream, but then they had you know previous groups of avant-garde art to, to, to push against. Um, with postmodernism, so from the 60s forward, you, first of all, you get too many people doing too many things at the same time. You no longer have these neat narrative changes where it's, okay, it's cubism, and now it's futurism, and now it's expressionism, you know, or, or whatever it is, the way it's taught in art books. So everything's kind of happening all at once. But then also it starts getting captured within mainstream society in that to have high cultural capital, it is no longer... Only to understand classical music, ballet, academic art, you know, all these, you know, predetermined forms. It's also to understand what's happening on the streets, to understand jazz, to understand popular music. And so the cultural capital, first of all, becomes so open that you don't have this elitist conservatism to push against. And then in the avant-garde world, you have too many things going on. So there's not a dominant avant-garde style to also push against where it's saying, you know, abstract expressionism is the thing. And so we're going to do pop art instead. You know, you just have, you know, all these different movements happening at the same time in which there's no clear thing to push against. Um, and then now you have a system and there's a great book coming out next year called Merchants of Style by Natasha Diggin, I think is her name. And um, it's about luxury and art and commerce becoming so tied together at this point that there really is no way to understand art except for as a part of that complex. So the rise of Yayoi Kusama, the artists, you can't uh, you can't take it away from the fact that she is working with these big luxury brands, that she has a brand of her own in dots, that the dots get kind of put on stuff and then branded, that the art itself has become very focused on things that can be sucked into the luxury industry and made into commodities. And so you now have this system that's much stronger as a mainstream system, which not only sucks in innovations from the outside and brings art inside of it, but at the same time, it can do so in a way that if you're not sucked into the system, you're simply a failure. And I think with avant-garde art in the 20th century, there was not only a rejection of conservatism, but there was this vibrancy outside of it to say, we're doing our own thing and it's important and it's great. We have our own journals, we have our own world, and we don't really care what other people think. And maybe people are starting to buy it, but they're idiots. You know, art, people who buy art are dumb. That's why they don't buy my art. But there was this real arrogance about we're actually creating the future and we're kind of the intellectual elite. And now, you know, with the internet, especially quantifying everything, 
the monoculture is so strong that if you are doing something really interesting on the margins and you have nothing to show for it, then you literally have nothing to show for it. And you have no arrogance even to say, my thing is really great. And so I think that that's the thing that I'm interested in. It's just, how do you get back to marginalize things having some sort of self-confidence and power? Because there's still a lot of things marginalized by the monoculture. There's you know more and more marginalized, but it's all simply seen as uh, failure rather than uh, you know alternative or superior alternative. And you know when you look at what Drake does, for example, and this is kind of a you know strange, maybe a slightly weird ta- tangent, but you know Drake is an established artist who is whose celebrity goes way far beyond his music. Drake is you know one of the biggest celebrities in the world, and he has been brilliant about finding whatever he sees on the margins, whether it's Migos in Atlanta or um, he just did an album with 21 Savage, but he finds someone young and enterprising and he makes a record with them or makes a song with them and brings them into his fold. And so suddenly they get sucked into the Drake fold, they become big, and then they become, you know, part of the monoculture. And so, you know, you would have, in order to break it, you would have to have people reject the enticement of being sucked into the system. Because, I mean, the thing, too, is that there was no compromise for avant-garde art in the late 19th century because no one was offering them a bridge. No one was saying, hey, Monet, great paintings, but just change these little things and then we'll let you into the galleries uh, and let you into the museums. So now, you know, you can do weird things. And if Drake or, you know, Kanye West, you know, let's say 10 years ago, came to you and said, I'm going to, you know, I want you to produce a track or something, you could get sucked into mainstream success instantly. And very few people want to turn that down. And there's probably a lot of you know economic reasons for that as well. Nobody wants to live like a bohemian. People want to uh, have health health insurance, whatever it is. But the system now is so good about uh, sucking up innovations as quickly as possible and denaturing them and making everybody on the margins feel like a loser that I think that has just created a very, very different di- dynamic. And we do not feel like we're in a world of uh, incredible innovation happening outside of the monoculture we're waiting for the monoculture to provide us those innovations well i think it would take about six hours to unpack everything that you've uh put forward there but um you've been super generous with your time i have two more questions you think we have time for for those so the the kind of last big open-ended question that i want to ask you is so in your book you argue a descriptive account of status and culture, that this is the way culture works. It's kind of this game to, you know, accrue more status. So that's, in your estimate, the way it does work. My question for you... And I, sorry, I'm going to interrupt ahead. you very quickly because I, I... There are times in which status can be a game, right, in, in very small instances. But the reason I don't call it a status game is because, number one games are trivial and you can walk away from them. And I don't think status is like that. But then also status goes beyond just the, Hey, me and you are tr- jockeying for position. And I think that's when you say status game, it's off, often it's like, how do I get more status? What I'm trying to show with this book is that status is an indivisible, sorry, an invisible grammar that sits at the bottom of society that ends up being behind why we find some things more valuable than others, why we find some aesthetics better than others. And if you just call it a game, you don't quite get those second and third order effects 
of it's not simply the individuals at this moment jockeying for status, but there's all these people in the past who have done so and established their ways of doing things as the right way of doing things so that, you know, a guitar and not a ukulele is the basic instrument of music or jazz is an established form in a way that mambo isn't. Right. And so all these things are behind uh, our, our decisions the way we live that maybe they were games in the past, but they've been baked into it. And so if you only look at that individual jockeying, I think you miss the full kind of impact of, of status. So sorry, that's I, just, I that that one is me being very pedantic, but I, I thought it was worth making that point. So now let's hit your question. Absolutely point taken. I do disagree with your characterization of games, but absolutely point taken in, in uh, your explication of those dynamics. Um, but anyway, my my question, which I think is still relevant here, is uh, is that the way it should work? Or another way, how what is the ideal outcome here? What should we do, given that this is the empirical thing that's happening? How should we structure society to make it better for 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 everyone? Um, what, what does that look like in your in your take? Yeah, you know, and, and this question is literally the fundamental basic question of all politics and all moral philosophy. So to give you some sort of glib answer now is probably difficult. The, the only things I would say are, you know, at the end of the book, and if you read my book, you will get a sense I'm, I really am not trying to it's not a polemic book. It's not saying status is good or status is bad. It's simply saying this is how it works. At the end of the book, I did realize I have to probably have some sort of personal opinion at some point or say, get into some normative ideas. And if you take these two words, status and culture, if you look at status, what is good? I think hierarchy is generally bad. I, I think that it is not, uh, it makes people miserable the 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 status seeking that we all do uh, makes us miserable and ashamed. None of that's great. I do not think you can get rid of hierarchy. They they naturally form, and the one thing you can do, however, is reduce the difference between the top and the bottom. Uh, you can flatten it, and so um, you know the example I give, which is it, it's simply a metaphor. It's not a, a solution, but. In Japan, if you get on the high-speed high train, the Shinkansen, it, the basic experience you get is very good. It's very clean. It's a great experience. Uh, and it's, you know, relatively expensive for, for uh, you know, how much trains are, but, you know, it, it's good. You can pay a little extra to get in the green car, which is the VIP section. And instead of three seats, there's two. It's a little bit bigger seat. So I think they give you a, a hot towel, but it is very minor of an uh, of an increase. And uh, you don't pay even that much more for it. And so you can have these different levels. You can have VIP areas, but you don't have to have the difference between them be as high as we have now. And especially, I think, in America, the difference between top and bottom are so extreme. Um, and also the public resources are so terrible that if you just show up and say, I want to be a normal middle-class person, you live a miserable life compared to the people above you. And it makes you say, I cannot be a normal status person. And so it increases status seeking. So when the benefits are so much better and you're denied so much from just simply being a member of good standing, it will obviously 
create more status seeking and more anxiety. So just as you know, a system solution to say you can reward the people at the top with some more esteem and some more benefits, but can you do it in a way that does not punish the people at the bottom and that it does not create the people in the middle, uh, uh, give them the sense that they've got to get out of that? Because when you're on you know, an American Airlines flight from uh, New York to Tokyo and it's 14 hours and you're in economy and you know, there's trash everywhere and the seats are broken and the TV is broken. You're just dreaming of being in business class because it would make your life so much better. And so if the, you know, I, I fly Japan Airlines, which is really nice and the economy is really nice and you just do not desire to move up as much as you do when, when the things are broken. So I think that's on the status side. On the culture side, uh, I believe in innovation and diversity and also valued innovation, you know, so there's lots of people doing different things, but, you know, interesting new things that everyone agrees, these have values. And so you have to create an ecosystem in which the people who are very smartly making non-idiosyncratic, non-crazy innovations to the culture, but really smart innovations to the culture, uh, that they are rewarded in some ways. And criticism is supposed to find those people and reward them criticism now is much more kind of like a reviewer's guide and also hey new taylor swift is out everyone wants to know what's it like so we're going to write about it um and so i do think there needs to be some sort of mechanism uh to reward people on the margins who are trying to make true innovations to the culture in any way uh the the market won't do it and i think you know criticism now is so tied to the market it probably won't do it it used to be that status could do it because you would get high status for appreciating weird avant-garde things. And so you had this, you know, status provided a natural mechanism to reward uh, difficult art. That's kind of gone now. Uh, and so bringing it back, you know, art as a form of snobbery seems not also like a great idea, but there needs to be something and and we should be thinking about it because it, it unless we do something about it, it's it's simply going to be that our aesthetic values and our the logic of artistic choice just fully gets subsumed into to market logic final question what are three books that have most influenced your own thinking so you know especially with this new book um i pulled three off my shelf that uh just you know blew my mind or really made me uh think about things in a different way so the first this there's a book called one for all by russell harden um, and it's the logic of group conflict. And it's about why ethnic groups uh, fight each other uh, based off cultural norms. And it's incredible because I think it also explains fashion really well. And it, it, it sounds strange to say that. But this book just really opened my mind <clears throat> about exactly what I'm talking about. That there's a logic. There's a logic to group norms and group behaviors. And until you really sit down to think about the specifics of it. I think a lot of it's mysterious. So that's one that I've, I've heard very few people talk about. I forget how I found it, but it, it really formed so much of my thinking about uh, this new book. The other for understanding how art changes and works, and this is a pretty short one. I mean, it's, it's, it's not an easy read, but Harold Bloom's The Anxiety of Influence uh, is, is just fantastic because it looks at culture as a process of um, I mean, he he uses poets, but a poet being under the shadow of the poets before and learning from them and imitating them and breaking from what they're doing and <clears throat> 
if they can become more successful and be su- successful changing the entire arc of the narrative of art towards themselves so that their own influences become also raised up. Um, so, you know, if you want to understand art, cultural change, cultural history, I think that book is, is very key. And then at the beginning, I talked about Jean Baudrillard. Um, so this is his third book for a critique of the political economy of the sign. And this is, I think, the one where he really gets into um, how almost the, you know, again, the the economics, the cultural, how would you describe this? Like the reason why things are valued uh, and how the political economic system and the system of society imbues certain things with values. And, um, you know, status and culture comes directly out of that way of thinking. Uh, it's a much more you know difficult French theory version of of the same ideas, but that was a, a massive influence. And uh, again, if you're interested in consumer society at all, definitely read the first three Baudrillard books. Awesome. David, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. That was my conversation with W. David Marks. Thanks for listening. If you did enjoy this show, please consider giving it a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. And as always, you can find the entire feed of my work on my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. That rating and subscribing really does go a long way towards helping me to support and grow this work. So I really do appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And I will be back here next week with another episode of the Meaning Lab podcast.